We've talked a lot in this series already, though we are just in chapter 4, about the kingdom of God. We did so because that is the way Jesus began His earthly ministry. He came saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And we saw there that because the kingdom of God was now at hand, it meant that a response was necessary. And that response was twofold. That response was to repent and then believe. And then last week I mentioned to you that there are some 60 unique uh, parables in all of the Gospels, not just in Mark, but in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John actually doesn't give us any parables. And in those 60 parables, the primary, not exclusive, but the primary subject is the kingdom of God. Many of them begin with the phrase, the kingdom of God is like, and then goes on to tell us something about the kingdom of God by use of ordinary everyday objects to compare and contrast with the kingdom of God. Now, to be fair, this whole topic is a bit confusing. I I recognize that. It's a bit confusing to me at times. We don't understand kingdom terminology because to us, a kingdom is a nation or a, a geographic realm, a group that holds sway over a particular and specific region of the world, and they often do so by power and even fear. We didn't establish our government in America under the idea of kings and their kingdoms, and therefore the terminology is somewhat foreign to us, though some people are still fascinated by it. Besides that, the Bible seems to use multiple phrases for this whole idea. Sometimes it's the kingdom of God, and sometimes it's the kingdom of heaven. And those two phrases are essentially synonymous. To add to the confusion... The phrase is used in at least four ways in the Bible, all of which, of course, speak to God Himself. First of all, the phrase is used to speak of the universal reign of God over all of His creation. In other words, God being the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things can be said to be the ruler over all and to have everything as part of His kingdom because everything has been created by Him. So number one, it's used as the the universal reign of God over all things and everything. Secondly, at times it is used to speak of the nation of Israel. In the Old Testament, that's the way it is sometimes used. We know that the Israelites were not the most powerful nation. They were not the strongest nor the mightiest, and they certainly were not the biggest in number. And yet they were God's chosen people, and so at times they collectively are called the kingdom of God. The third way this phrase is used is to speak of the ministry of Jesus which he began with that pronouncement that I mentioned, that continues in and through us, his church. That is, the kingdom of God is at work in and around and through us, and as a result, we are part of it. As long as, of course, we have by faith trusted in Christ in order to be part of the kingdom of God in this respect, one must have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ as the Savior and Lord. And then there is the fourth element, and that is the coming of Christ at the end of history to culminate this kingdom. So this is another reason why this is so confusing, because in the one hand, we talk in a past tense, the kingdom of God has come, it is at hand, while at the same time, we talk of the future tense, thinking about Christ coming again to complete His kingdom. We see this in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
And so we can define the kingdom of God like this. It is the reign of God through Christ in the lives of persons evidenced by His activity in, through, and around them. So that is the present tense aspect of the kingdom, and that is what we are going to be talking about this morning, the work of God in and through us because of Christ. This kingdom was prophesied in the Old Testament. It was pictured in Israel. It was proclaimed by John the Baptist. It was, as we've seen, inaugurated by Christ at the beginning of His earthly ministry, It was then extended into the lives of us and others through His church, so His kingdom continues to reign through His church, and ultimately will be consummated by Christ when He returns to rule with His saints. I realize that's a lot, and I realize that's why it is somewhat confusing, this whole idea of the kingdom of God, which perhaps is why we need so many pictures That's why we need so many parables to help us see what the kingdom of God is really like. And that's what we're going to be doing this morning. We're going to look at four brief parables that talk to us about the kingdom of God, and then we are going to examine an event, not a parable, but an event that tells us something about the king of this kingdom. So we are in Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 41, and this is a collection that Mark has brought together. In other words, these are not parables that Jesus told on one occasion, one after another. These are parables that during the ministry of Jesus He told, and Mark has brought them together. Mark actually doesn't give us a lot of Jesus' teaching. The bulk of His teaching from Mark's perspective is found in chapter 4 and again in chapter 13. But in chapter 4, He has brought together a collection of His teachings. And I say that from verses 33 and 34 where he simply acknowledges that there are others he could have used. John does the same thing in his gospel. John says at the very end of his gospel that there were many other things that Jesus did, and were they all to be written, John says, I suppose that the whole world could not contain the books that would have to be written in order to describe everything that Jesus did. So Mark is doing a similar thing here. And the reason I say all that is because I'm not going to read the whole text to begin with. I'm going to read each section, that is each parable, one at a time, then make my comments on it, and then come back to the Scriptures and look at the next one so that we have that particular section in mind as I talk about it, which means you are going to need to keep your Bibles open. So if you happen to fall asleep during the sermon this morning because of your great loss of one hour, I want you to fall asleep with an open Bible. I want your head to hit the Bible as you fall asleep. So we'll start in verse 21. Mark 4, verse 21, and he said to them, that is Jesus speaking, of course, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. We call this the parable of the lamp, though it doesn't sound like much of a parable to us because we tend to think of a parable as a much longer story, a short story, but longer than this, like the parable of the prodigal son that we're finishing up talking about tonight in life groups, or like the parable that we looked at last week, the parable of the sower and his soils. That's what looks like a parable to us, but this is a parable as well. Remember the definition of a parable. It is something placed alongside something else 
for the purpose of comparison or for the purpose of clarification. So with that definition, this is a parable, the parable of the lamp. Now, a lamp is by nature placed somewhere in order to shine its light. If you happen to have a lamp at home that is under the bed or up in your attic, it is because of one of two reasons. Number one, it no longer works and you've not yet thrown it out. You've just put it aside somewhere or it still works, but it no longer matches your decor and therefore you don't want to use it any longer. But if you have a lamp that you want to use, it is going to be in a place where its light can shine and penetrate the darkness because that is the purpose and function of a lamp. Similarly, if something is hidden, it is hidden for a time, and ultimately it is going to be revealed. You hide something for a period of time in order that you might reveal it at some point in the future. And so the kingdom of God, though prophesied in the New Testament and pictured in Israel, was largely hidden until this point. But now, this is what this first parable teaches us, the kingdom of God is revealed as a lamp shines in the darkness, the kingdom of God has come, and therefore it has been revealed to us. The time is now for it to be revealed. The secret has now been made manifest. The light is now shining in the darkness. That's what this idea of the lamp and something hidden and revealed is all about. It is about the fact that God in Christ has come, and in doing so, has revealed to us the kingdom of God. Now, there's an interesting phrase in this particular parable that you are going to miss because in the English, it makes you miss it. It is the phrase, the lamp is brought. Does anybody bring a lamp? A lamp is an inanimate object, therefore it must be brought, right? It cannot bring itself. It is not alive, and therefore it must be brought. But in actuality, the word is the word come. It is not the word brought. It is the lamp comes. But it's changed for our English versions because a lamp cannot bring itself. But I think the reason that word is there rather than the word brought, and I looked up several translations and all of them translated it brought, I think the reason it's there is because this lamp is not just a lamp. This lamp is, in fact, Jesus who has come to reveal to us the kingdom of God. John tells us the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John quotes to us Jesus saying later in his gospel very plainly, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus did not bring the kingdom of God in order to conceal it, but for the purpose of revealing it. And that continues in our own day with our roles. It is now our responsibility to help shine the light so that others can see that light and have darkness erased in their own hearts and lives. You are the light of the world, Jesus said in another place. Obviously, He's the light of the world, but now we reflect that to a lost world, and our responsibility is to continue to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. All the while understanding that the majority are not going to see that. They are going to remain in darkness, but we must continue to shine the light. The kingdom of God has been revealed. Have you seen it? Have you accepted it? 
Now listen, I want you to understand that this is significant and this is important. I know the tendency might be on a Sunday like this when we've lost an hour of sleep for you to come and and you think to yourself, why is he talking to me about this kingdom of God that I don't really understand what it's all about anyway and it just seems so subjective and, and sort of out there that I don't even comprehend it? Why doesn't he talk to me about something more practical and more significant like my marriage or like my parenting or, or how to go to work tomorrow when my boss is not what I want him to be? Why doesn't he talk to me about something more important? Well, I want you to understand this morning that there is no more important subject than the kingdom of God. There is nothing more significant that I could preach to you today other than Jesus Christ has come in order to reveal that the kingdom of God is at hand and therefore you and I must respond to it. So number one, the kingdom of God is revealed. The second parable tells us that the kingdom of God is significant or important. Verse 24, pay attention. He said to them, verse 24, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Say, what in the world does that mean? I mean, I admit that these are, in my opinion, the two hardest verses in this chapter to understand. Again, it is a parable. It doesn't really sound like one, but based on the definition, it is a parable, and we might call it the parable of the measure. But what does it mean? Well, before we get to the actual meaning, I do want you to see that 10 times in Mark chapter 4, in just this one chapter, 10 times we are encouraged or implored to hear, to pay attention, to listen, not just to the actual words, not just so that we can understand what is being said with our minds, but that we might comprehend and know what is being taught with our hearts and lives, to truly perceive and understand, not to let the teaching go in one ear and out the other, as we say. And the reason I bring that up is because I think it has a bearing on what this parable of the measure means. We could say that this parable teaches the principle that we mentioned last week. You reap what you sow. Those who Uh, sow sparingly will reap sparingly, and those who uh, sow bountifully will reap bountifully. It sounds somewhat like that. Or we might say that, that what it's talking about here is be careful how you judge other people because the measure in which you judge other people, the way you judge them, is the way that you are going to be judged. And in fact, there was a common saying in this time that was similar to that. That common saying was, in the pot in which you cook for others, you will be cooked. A way of reminding them to not be harsh with others because it might come back on you. And while all of that is true, the question is, is that what these verses, is that what this parable is talking about? And I don't think it is. I think what it means here is the manner in which you hear, I think the hearing is significant, the manner in which you hear will determine the measure of your understanding, which will then determine your future. That is why it is so important to listen and to pay attention and to have ears that hear, meaning that as you embrace the light, you will be given more light. As you begin to understand through the Holy Spirit what this Messiah coming is all about, 
you will be given more understanding and it will open up to you. But if you deny that light, the little light that you have will be taken away or withdrawn from you. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 9 says, Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. And I think that's, in essence, what this parable is teaching us. That as we understand the light, and as we come to know what it's talking about, we will grow in our understanding. We will be given more light and more perception. But if we hard-heartedly reject the light... What little understanding we have will be taken away from us. God wants to reveal more and more of the kingdom to us. He does not want to conceal it from us. So the kingdom has been revealed. And secondly, the kingdom is significant or important. The third parable teaches us that the kingdom is growing. Verse 26, and he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. This parable is about the growing of the kingdom of God, and you may recognize that it has some similarities to the parable that we examined last week. This is a unique parable for Mark, meaning that he is the only gospel writer that gives us this parable, and it is the only unique parable that Mark does, in fact, give us. The story itself is easy enough to understand, and we've seen that before. The story element of the parable is often easy to follow, but the spiritual significance is what we debate. So here we have a farmer who sows seed. And after the passing of some time, that is what the rising day and night refers to. That gives us the the time element that days are going by. The seed begins to germinate and ultimately grow. And yet the farmer does not fully understand the process. Now keep in mind, this is a parable. I am fully aware that there are people who can, in fact, explain the entire process to you. This is no longer a mystery to us. We can discover this by asking the right people. If you want to know more about this, you can certainly ask Mike Hubbs. He will be happy to share with you for probably a lengthy time afterwards exactly how this whole process works. Or if you remember your uh, days in school, I don't, but maybe you do, you can remember some of this. But the point is not that nobody knows how a seed goes from being cast into the soil to producing a plant. That's not the point. The point is that initially, you cannot see the growth of the seed. When it begins to germinate, you cannot see that. You cannot see it until it penetrates the surface and begins to peek out of the dirt. But even then, the growth, at least day to day, is not perceptible. If you go back and look at that plant every single day, you are not going to see noticeable growth. But over the course of time, You are. That seed is going to grow into something that is much bigger than itself, and ultimately it is going to produce a harvest. When the seed is sown and all the conditions are right and it begins to germinate, that is the sign that the harvest is coming. And when the harvest has come, then it is time to reap the fruit of the harvest. 
And so this parable goes through the various stages of a seed growing into a plant and ultimately producing a harvest. So what does that mean for us? What is the farming lesson here to teach us about the kingdom of God? Well, first of all, we are reminded that a seed's growth is not spectacular, nor does it often attract attention. Again, you can't even see it initially, and thereafter, it is not noticeable unless you allow enough time to pass by, which means for the harvest to come, there must be the passing of time, something we are not very good at. We want everything now. We have been called the microwave society, although I'm confident there's probably a more up-to-date name for that now than I'm not aware of. But we were called the, the microwave society, meaning that we want everything now. We do not have the stomach to wait on anything. We want it now, and we want it with the latest graphics and high resolution because everything must wow us now. And the kingdom of God is simply not like that. The kingdom of God does not often grow in spectacular manner, nor does it attract us with all of its marketing plans. Instead, God works slowly but seriously. And so this is a reminder that the kingdom of God is not only here, but it is growing. And while it might not be spectacular growth from our perspective, it is certain growth. The harvest is going to come, and therefore, because God's promising the harvest, we can continue to work in the kingdom of God. We must not lose heart and grow weary because we have the promise that there is going to be a harvest. Even as we saw last week in the four soils, only one of those soils ultimately produced genuine believers. However, that was a promise. That was a promise that the the sowing was going to reap a harvest, and that is the same thing we are seeing here. And so anyone who has been in a ministry for a season of time, months or maybe years, can identify with what I'm talking about here. There are times when we begin to wonder, is our ministry making a difference? Am I impacting anybody? Are people really coming to faith in Christ and having done that, are they growing in their relationship with Christ? And there are times when when all of us doubt those things, but this parable reminds us that even when we cannot see the growth, even when it is not spectacular, it is there, not because we are faithful, but because God has promised that when He begins a work, He is going to complete it. So the faithfulness of God to His own promises assure us that a harvest is coming and the kingdom is growing. So the kingdom is revealed, the kingdom is significant, the kingdom is growing, and the fourth parable teaches us something similar to what we've just looked at, but distinct enough to deal with separately, and that is the kingdom is certain. Verse 30, and he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all of the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. 
He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. And we dealt with those two verses last week when we talked about the purpose of parables and that those who were on the outside, he spoke in parables so that they wouldn't even understand because their hearts were hard. But to those on the inside, in this case his disciples, but it went beyond those, those 12, to those on the inside, he explained what the parables meant. And that's why in the parable of the sower, you've got those two sections. You've got the parable itself, and then you've got the explanation of the parable. So we're not going to deal with those two verses again. So the kingdom is certain. This is the parable of the mustard seed. When we talk about the kingdom of God, we are not talking about our hopes and our dreams. We are not talking about what we want to see in the future, though, of course, our hopes and dreams ought to be in line with God, but we are talking about something that God has promised and therefore God is performing. Now, this one is a parable about a small seed. In fact, Jesus says it is the smallest of seeds. Now, there are some today who would take issue with Jesus on this and say that he, frankly, got it wrong. Because the mustard seed is, in fact, not the smallest seed on the earth. There are seeds that are smaller than it. Therefore, their logic goes, Jesus got this wrong. If Jesus got this wrong, he can't be trusted to get other things right. Therefore, Jesus cannot be trusted at all. Therefore, Jesus is not God. All from this parable of the mustard seed, they take these steps and conclude that we cannot trust Jesus because he doesn't even know that the mustard seed is not the smallest seed upon the earth. Well, their logic is flawed for several reasons. Number one, it is certainly possible that at that time, the mustard seed could have been the smallest seed known to an Israelite farmer. Remember, he is talking in a culture at a specific time. So it is possible that at that time, the seed was the smallest that they would have been familiar with. Secondly, and more importantly, the issue here is not a teaching, a lesson on horticulture. He is giving us a parable. And this parable reminds us that we must not push every point. The point is not primarily the smallness of the seed as compared to other seeds. In fact, that's not the point at all. The point of comparison is between the smallness of the initial seed and the, the bush that it eventually produces. So there could have been smaller seeds, but they didn't grow to large garden plants or herbs, and therefore he didn't use them because the comparison would not have been the same. I have a picture from our Israel trip with our tour guide's hand, the palm of her hand out like this, with some 20 or 30 mustard seeds in her hand. I did not bring that picture this morning and put it up on the screen, because quite frankly, from the distance you sit from the screen, you would not have been able to tell that there was anything in her hand. That is, these seeds are so small that you have to get up really close to see that they are, in fact, seeds and that there are a handful in her hand. So this is not a, a literal statement. It is a proverbial one, a proverbial one that is in the midst of a parable. Now, that mustard seed eventually becomes a large shrub, not a tree as we would call it, but a shrub like perhaps you have out front of your house. It could grow to 10 or 12 feet at its maximum height. It could have uh, branches that were three or four inches thick at its maximum. And as a result, it was large enough to produce shade. And the birds would have enjoyed the shade because this is a desert climate. And so they would have nested quite happily under the branches of the mustard plant. 
Now, the birds in this parable have been interpreted to mean several different things. Number one, the birds can go back to verse 14, I believe it is. I know it's, it's what we talked about last week. When, he, when the farmer sowed the soil on the path, the text tells us that the birds came and ate those seed. And then later in the explanation, it says Satan is the bird. That is, he's the one that comes and snatches the Word of God once it is sown on this path. And so some go back to that and say, well, we're in the same chapter, and therefore the birds must mean the same thing. I don't think that's a good analogy, especially given the fact that we've already talked about these are parables told at different times that Mark brings together here. So I don't think the birds represent Satan here. Others say that they are akin to us. That is, we are the citizens of the kingdom, and we find shelter in the kingdom, and so we are pictured here as the birds. A third option is that they represent the various nations, that all nations are going to come. Again, not geographical entities, but all people groups are going to come under the umbrella of the kingdom of God, and these birds represent that. Now, this fourth one is a bit confusing, so I need you to pay close attention here. The fourth option for the birds is this. They're birds, and they're nesting in the shade of these plants. And I tend to think it's either this fourth one or perhaps the third one. But the point is that this seed that is very small produces a shrub that is large enough to house these birds, and the comparison is the kingdom of God from its beginning to its culmination is going to have tremendous growth. Again, we're not here to talk about farming and shrubs. We are here to talk about the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is not only growing, but that growth is so certain and that growth is so significant that in the end, it produces something that is completely out of proportion to where it began, a small seed developing into a large shrub. It reminds me of some of the stories that you read about from some of these tech companies that have grown very large. And they've done so from very humble beginnings. For example, Apple Company, which all of us are familiar with Apple, whether you use their products or not, you you know what they are. You know what they make. Apple is now, as of last Thursday when I checked, an $816 billion company. That was their market cap this last Thursday. Now, last fall, they actually briefly cost crossed the one trillion market cap, though they went back down when the market went south uh, during the last few months of the year, but $816 billion market cap. That company started a little over 40 years ago in the garage of Steve Jobs' parents' house. He started it with, with another man named Steve Wozniak. And the two of these men started this company in the garage of his parents' house. And if you look up online the house that his parents lived in and that he was raised in, it is not a huge house. It is by no means a mansion. It is a simple ranch house with a single car garage. And there were two geeks 40-something years ago tinkering around in that single car garage. And now 40-plus years later, they have an $816 billion company. And that's what we're talking about here, from very humble beginnings. 
a persecuted sect of a few people in a part of the world that most of us don't know much about has now grown into a worldwide kingdom that has encompassed many people, has not yet reached every people group, but we are still making uh, an effort to do just that. And who knows how much it's going to grow between the time of this setting and when we die or between now and when Christ comes again. I mean, who would have guessed from these 12 apostles, who, by the way, don't come across to us as the brightest of men in these gospel stories. In fact, we're going to see that in just a moment. I mean, they just have a, they take a long time in getting it. Their faith is not exactly strong, not at least until after the resurrection of Jesus. And from these 12 apostles has grown a worldwide movement. The kingdom of God is not just growing But that growth is so certain that the kingdom's magnitude when Christ comes again is going to far surpass what anybody would have expected when it first began. Well, that's the four parables. The kingdom of God is revealed. It is significant. The kingdom of God is growing, and it is uh, certain. And now we want to switch our focus. This last one is not a parable. It is an event in the life of Jesus. And now we're not talking primarily about the kingdom of God. We're talking about the king of that kingdom. So this last story teaches us that the king in the kingdom of God is powerful. Look at verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with him They took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? What this last story teaches us is that the king of the kingdom of God has power over his kingdom. And in this sense, we're talking about his nature, his creation. This is one of two nature miracles that Mark records for us, and there. Although this story is brief, and we've come to expect that with Mark, there is enough detail in this story to remind us that this is an eyewitness testimony. Mark is writing down what Peter has told him. And so the setting is once again, we are familiar with this by now, the setting is the Sea of Galilee. Literally, they are on the Sea of Galilee in a boat. There are other boats with them, and the disciples are with Jesus. He has left the crowd now. For one of two reasons, either to go elsewhere to preach, as he has already said his mission is, or to get alone for a a period of time with his disciples, or perhaps both. And so he has gotten in the boat, and there, uh, there is a boat in a museum in Israel that comes from this time period that was unearthed some years ago, and it shows us how large these boats actually were, and they could, uh, they could hold up to about 15 people. Now, the Sea of Galilee has been known throughout history and even to this day as a place where storms can indeed suddenly arise and these storms can be rather violent. 
The Sea of Galilee sits 700 feet below sea level. It is surrounded by hills or mountains, but just 30 miles to the northeast of the Sea of Galilee sits Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon rises to an elevation of 9,200 feet. So in a 30-mile radius, there is a mountain that sits 9,000-plus feet above sea level, and then this sea that is 700 feet below sea level. And the combination of the cold air from that mountain and the warmer air down at below sea level produces all kinds of unpredictable weather. And maybe it's just time we admit that all weather is unpredictable and stop watching the Weather Channel all the time thinking they know what they're talking about. But anyway, that's a side item. So the weather on the Sea of Galilee was indeed unpredictable, so much so that storms, and in this case a very, a very terrible storm, could arise without much warning. And when the storm comes, we find Jesus asleep. This is the only time in Scripture that we are told that Jesus sleeps. It's a reminder to us of His humanity, that is, He was fully human without taking away anything from His divinity. He was fully God and yet fully man, and He could sleep in the midst of all of this turmoil because He had complete trust in His Father. Now, there are several similarities between this story and the story of Jonah. If you're with us on Wednesday nights, you know that a few weeks ago we did, in fact, talk about the story of Jonah. And we saw how Jonah was fleeing away from God. Most of you know the details of that story. Jonah was fleeing away from God, and he too finds himself in a boat on the sea during a storm, and he too is asleep during the midst of that storm. And he has to be awakened by the other sailors also. But he is not asleep because he has complete trust in God. He is asleep because he is indifferent to the things of God. He doesn't care whether he lives or dies. And that's exactly what the disciples are about to accuse Jesus of. They are about to accuse him of being indifferent to their plight. Now, we know that this was a particularly strong storm because these are, at least some of them, are seasoned sailors. We know that multiple disciples were fishermen. They lived their lives on this lake or sea. And so for them to be in a condition where they fear for their lives where they believe that the sinking of the boat is imminent and therefore so is their death. And yet Jesus doesn't seem to care. Look at the question in verse 38. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I'm confident many of us have asked that same question of God. Maybe not in response to a near-death experience, maybe not even verbally, but we've thought it. God, do you not even care that I'm going through this? Do you not even care about my suffering and my pain? And in the midst of these times, we begin to doubt the love of God and question His care. We think just like these men. They are filled with fear and they are fuming at God because he's not doing what they think that he ought to do, rather than exercise faith, as we'll see in just a moment. They believe Jesus is indifferent to their plight and does not hear their cries for relief. 
And while the point of this story is primarily the power of the king of this kingdom, there is a secondary point I think we do need to understand here, and that is that there might be times in our life where for all the circumstances it looks like God doesn't care, and it feels like God is indifferent to our circumstances, and we cry out to God this same question. This story reminds us that though the circumstances may point us in the wrong direction, God does indeed care about who we are and where we are, God has not abandoned us. And in response to this accusation, Jesus quickly and completely stops the storm. Literally, it is be still and stay still. The word peace is really not found there. It it is a word, it is two words that, that means still and stay that way. It's actually a word that means to be muzzled. Jesus is making very clear that when he speaks to nature, nature is going to listen and it is going to stay that way because he is the voice of authority. The king of the kingdom has spoken and creation responds. Did you know that early Christian art often depicted the church as a boat in the midst of the sea during a storm? We tend to want to look at our lives and maybe the life of our church collectively after the storm. I mean, that's a beautiful picture of how God brings us calm and brings us peace. But Christian art initially often depicted the church as a boat in the midst of the storm with one significant addition, and that is Jesus was in the boat with the church. And what we fail to realize sometimes is that when Jesus is with us, we can have peace no matter what kind of storms are going on around us. Whether we are at ease in our life or whether we are not, and we have often gotten the the misunderstood idea that when we by faith trust in Christ, He makes our life comfortable. He gives us a life of ease, though that is not what the Bible teaches, and though our experience often tells us otherwise, down deep, that is what many people believe, and that is why we are thrown off course when the storms of life come, and what we need to see is that storms of life are indeed promised. But so is the presence of God. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. And thus, whether we're in the storm or not, we can indeed have peace. But there's another interesting element I want you to see here, and I do not want you to miss. Even after the storm has subsided, these disciples are still afraid. In fact, it can rightly be said that they are more afraid after the storm than they were in the midst of the storm. I mean, look at verse 41. They are filled with great fear. Why? The storm is already over with. Why in verse 41 are we told that they are filled with great fear because the the waves are no longer crashing, the boat is no longer in imminent danger of seeking, there is complete calm now, and yet we are told that they are filled with great fear because now they are more afraid of who they are in the boat with than what's going on or what was going on outside of the boat. They are having more of a hard time dealing with the presence of God, though they don't completely understand that yet. They are having a harder time dealing with the presence of God in the boat than they were the storm that was outside of the boat. The presence of God is more frightening to them than the natural disaster that almost overtook them. After all, the storm can take their life, but God can take 
the soul. And that is why they asked this question, who is this? Who in the world are we in a boat with? That even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this that can speak to nature and nature immediately complies with what he says? They don't know the answer to that question just yet. They're asking it, but they don't know the answer yet. Eventually, 11 of the 12, of course, are going to come to the right answer. But more importantly, it's a question that you and I must deal with, and it's a question that we must answer, which again is why this is so important and it is so practical, Practical because it is the greatest question of your life. And the answer to this question affects not only what you do at work or in your marriage, It goes well beyond that and affects everything in your life and ultimately all of your eternity. So we must answer that question, and that is why we are studying the gospel of Mark. We're going through this gospel to help us answer, who is this? Who is this man who has come who can speak to the demons as we've already seen, and they will flee? And we'll see that again next time in chapter 5 when he speaks to the demons and casts them out into a herd of swine. And in that case, the townspeople are so afraid of who he is, they ask him to leave. I mean, can you imagine that? They tell Jesus they don't want him and for him to get out of their region. Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? He is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who has come to reveal the kingdom of God to us and to invite us to join him in the kingdom of God. And if we repent and believe... He adopts us into that kingdom, translating us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son, redeeming us from our sins, bestowing upon us His own righteousness so that we can enjoy the kingdom now and forever. And perhaps it's time for you to recognize this and having recognized it, to obey Him. I mean, the winds and the waves, they obey because they know who's speaking to them. We need to do likewise. Let's pray.